Welcome to In Orbit, the podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world. Brought to you by the Satellite Applications Catapult. I'm your host, Maggie Adairin Pocock, and in this series, we'll be discussing some of the incredible and unexpected ways the UK is using space to make huge differences to life on Earth, as well as taking a look forward to some of the amazing innovations we can expect for the future. This episode is all about geospatial intelligence and what can be done with data that is captured via Earth observation. I'm joined by Peter Beaumont, the Director of Geospatial Innovation at the Catapult, Richard Flemings, Partner and CTO at 4Earth Intelligence, Owen Hawkins, Product Development Director at EarthEye, and Alexander Lacoste, Research Scientist at Element AI. Terms like Earth observation and geospatial intelligence may not make it into the casual conversation for most people, but when accessing things like maps, weather information, traffic information and air quality data, we are actively engaging with information that has been obtained via these means. There's a lot of work being done to evolve this technology, but we've barely even scratched the surface. To know what it's truly capable of, we need to understand it on a fundamental level. Referred to as geospatial innovation at the catapult, it's the analysis of data that has either a geographic or location element to it. For example, a satellite image that has a longitude or latitude reference system to it, or even a postcode. The data, in its various forms, has been used to make sectors like agriculture, transport, and even the extractive industries perform more effectively and efficiently. But the technology still needs to be adopted more widely. So, we know that there are many industries that stand to benefit from GI integration. But, to get a wider uptake, there needs to be greater awareness. Businesses cannot consider the possibilities of something they simply don't know enough about. Peter, you lead the geospatial intelligence team at the Catapult and you believe that this is the most exciting time for geospatial technologies in over 30 years. Never before have we had access to so much data, with new satellites being launched almost every month, and the promises of multiple images being provided every day, creating opportunities to satisfy use cases that have not been possible before. But of course, this opportunity comes with many challenges. Uh, The number one challenge still relates to visibility and a broader understanding of what Earth observation can provide to an organisation. Historically, we've perhaps been a little bit too technology focused. And here in the UK, we have a very successful community of very well-respected Earth observation consultancies and, and companies. However, there is this lack of awareness. And when you're talking to the decision makers in a FTSE 100 company, or senior decision makers within government, we have to do a much better job of focusing in on what are the real challenges that they're facing and actually present them with solutions or value propositions to meet those challenges. Owen, you're Product Development Director at EarthEye, and you've seen a great deal of tech advances taking place during your 15 years in the industry. The process of analysing the data has been streamlined considerably over the years, but I guess 
there's still a lengthy process that has to happen before you get to that very small part that the customer is interested in. Broadly, you know, when we get imagery, even if the provider's done some kind of adjustments, we still have to do a lot of work to get that all into a usable form. And then eventually, all the customer really wants to see is the answer. You know, they don't want to know about pixels. They don't want to know about all of these things. They just want to know, you know, what is happening on my construction site? What's the health of my coffee field? What is happening at some remote industrial location? So in a lot of cases, in a lot of our services, the customers never even see an image. So we're getting all that data, putting it all through our processing infrastructure. And then all they're getting is, you know, in some cases, particularly in the case of copper, they just get a number that says this is the performance of the manufacturing of copper. So, yeah, I guess the the challenges are, are that, you know, the data all comes in different formats and every customer wants to know something different. So in between those two points, we have a lot of different configurations, really, of analytics and, and also quality assurance where we have to do a lot of that and before the customer gets their answer. Now, Richard... You have a long history in delivering innovative geospatial products and services. Your role as Chief Technology Officer at Full Earth Intelligence is all about leveraging what you're doing with your projects within the company and then making them commercially viable. Now, climate resistance is an area that could really benefit from GI innovation and your work creating a heat index model is a great example of that. So it's really taking a lot of very complex satellite-derived information and distilling it down into a location-based index so that everyone in Great Britain can understand their risk when there's a heatwave event. There's increased heat due to global warming, increased heat due to climate change, and there's very little information, actual sort of objective information and evidence out there about how that's manifesting itself in urban environments. There's temperature sensors, but they're often one or two per city. Um, what satellites have allowed us to do is understand to a very high level of detail where um, hotspots are, where particular locations of risk are, but also understand how things like green infrastructure and blue infrastructure helping to cool the urban environment during a heat event. Alexandra, you're also very passionate about climate resilience and climate change. In your role as research scientist at Element AI, your fundamental work publishing papers and trying to push the limits of AI contribute to its evolution. What do you think are some of the challenges in this area? I guess collaboration is a challenge. You cannot really hope to just be behind your computer and have real world and back on these issues just on your own. So you do have to reach out to domain expert and collaborate and find find ways that these these discovery these um, these tools that you're going to develop are going to be used and have impact. So, in a sense, if you want to have uh, impact on agriculture, you need to find a way to discuss with domain experts like agriculture, like institutes that are doing research in agriculture and that are like highly connected to farm, the farming industry and the people developing the tools. Or if you want to have impact on renewable energy, you, you definitely need to get in touch with domain experts and, and really realize what are the, um, the real challenges because otherwise you may just spend your time solving a problem that doesn't work to be solved. 
Historically, satellite data was difficult to come by. Access was reserved for those working in specific sectors, and for anyone else, it came with a hefty price tag. But we've moved on since then, and the evolution of artificial intelligence and other technologies has helped data to become more accessible, whilst also highlighting what could be possible if fully utilised. So once the awareness issue has been conquered and businesses have a better grasp of the benefits of GI integration, the next step is about getting the communication right. It's crucial to have a flexible approach when speaking to those businesses in order to assess their needs. Some will know exactly what they need, while others might require a bit more guidance. Owen, how does EarthEye tackle this? End users have a challenge, really, of of understanding how space can improve their business operations or you know their agricultural activity, whatever it might be. And so what generally happens is that we have to have a really open mind when we're talking to our to our customers. You know, sometimes we get customers who come to us and they say, I want this type of thing from satellite and they have very definite ideas and a lot of the time you know those customers would have researched it and they'll say you know we know that we can use satellite data for checking if trees are overgrowing train lines or something like that and we say yeah absolutely we can we've been doing that for years and here you go this is what you need whereas in other cases it's a really exploratory approach that we have to take so you know sometimes particularly large organizations come to us with much more broad questions so they say look how can we use satellite data to you know decrease the risk of our investments or something like that and then we say okay well let's go through what are your investments you know okay oh there's some mines in there maybe we can look at some of the mines and ensure that their functioning is required and maybe we can look into ESG, for example, is a really important topic now of ensuring that companies have good environmental credentials. And um, and so then we say, OK, well, we can use some satellite data maybe to do that. But really, it requires a lot of uh, open uh, discussion and really, you know, people having an open mind on their end as well about what they can do. So, yeah, let's just say that it's uh, it's a complicated process. <laughs> Although covid has presented us with many challenges. There have also been some good opportunities that have come out of it in terms of satellite solutions. There's um, the clear economic impact that it's having, which is which is no good for a lot of companies. But conversely, people are finding that they're not able to do things like visit sites so easily. They've got more health and safety concerns, which you know have multiplied over the last couple of months tenfold. And so often then that makes people think in a different way and they think, oh, actually, how maybe we could use satellites to do this. You know, we don't actually have to send a load of people out and put them at risk with heavy machinery and, and things like that. What if we can answer some of these questions with satellite? But then in other areas, you know, there's there are some really interesting verticals where at the moment there is so little information. Things like our copper product, Savant, where people just do not know what is happening with with overseas production facilities yet everyone is it needs to know you know what the what's going to happen to the copper price in order to foresee what they're even going to do you know to make fridges for the next 2 years or whatever it might be electric cars and things like that require a lot of copper so there are there are other areas as well where basically we're able to shine a light on on what is happening 
in these industries, which just makes everything flow a bit easier for everyone. It means, you know, they can foresee that there aren't going to be any issues with the copper supply, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, they're able to, you know, not have so much contingency, things like that. It can save a lot of people a lot of money. So, yeah, we're seeing a lot of opportunities in alternative data like that. I mean, really, the biggest opportunities are when our users and our customers have an open mind about what they can achieve, because generally people find it really surprising what they can get from satellites. Iron and steel and cement production are two of the most emission-intensive industries, accounting for somewhere between 6.7% and 8% of the global CO2 emissions, respectively. They also have significant environmental impacts beyond carbon, including substantial energy requirements and a significant amount of natural resources consumed during production. Peter, the Catapult's Asset Level Data Project focuses on the creation of a global geo-reference dataset of the locations of physical assets such as this. Why is this needed? These are needed to assist in assessing the environmental risk and the impact exposure and the associated diffusion of these risks and impacts through the financial system. Data on such physical assets is typically incomplete, estimated to be somewhere between 70 to 75% of assets, inaccurate or not released in a timely manner. It's typically released somewhere between every one to two years. And the information provided in these data sets are often inadequate for the types of risk and analysis. For example, the data sets often do not provide exact locations for assets, which is needed for the physical risk assessment. And frequently, they don't include important data fields such as capacity that is needed for estimating emissions. And as a result, key stakeholders, such as the asset owner or the asset manager, the regulators and policymakers, are frequently forced to make crucial decisions with incomplete information. The solution to this challenge is to use Earth observation data. Because it's a global challenge, and we're trying to find these asset locations across thousands of satellite images, then we need to make the most use of machine learning technologies to allow us to automate as much of this as possible. And we're compiling a complete and regularly updated global asset level data set, including exact details on the asset location, which is then linked to data about production, process and capacity, utilization rate and ownership. With a complete global data set, we can better understand where the emissions are coming from, from sectors, from regions, help to improve geospatial risk assessments, including being able to compare which companies and portfolios have the greatest risk and or impact. And are there other cases where this data could prove to be useful? So this asset level data can support a range of use cases, including financial institutions, looking at assessing the exposure to climate related risks, policymakers monitoring the environmental and social impacts, including air and water pollution, greenhouse gas emissions, and being able to track whether companies, portfolios, sectors or regions are aligned with the Paris Agreement, informing policy design and implementation. Ultimately, the project aims to create an improved asset level data set that will be available as an open source solution. The Catapult has also worked on projects that observe changes in infrastructure over time, which could potentially help to preempt catastrophic failures. Can you tell me about Bridgetal? This was carried out jointly with the National Research Council in Canada. 
It was looking at monitoring infrastructure using what we call interferometric SAR. So this is where we're using two or more radar images from satellite to generate maps that show changes or deformation in either the digital elevation, the ground surface, or in the case of bridges, which is what we were monitoring, it's picking up millimeter scale changes in a bridge. Those changes may take place because of temperature changes. They may take place because of a structural change within the bridge. And this is a really exciting project because we've seen over the last year or so, we've seen major catastrophic bridge failures. And by using the interferometric SAR technology, we can potentially monitor over long term the health of infrastructure like a bridge or like an embankment and potentially be able to identify changes in the behavior of that structure, which when looked at by a structural engineer may indicate that there's potentially a failure about to take place. And this is really exciting because there are opportunities to operationalize now such a service, which could be truly game-changing in how asset managers manage their assets, particularly around predictive maintenance. And I'm particularly interested in this project because it's raised a lot of interest within the construction sector, who we're now working with to look at what is the financial value proposition and how do we promote this scientific research and encourage organizations to develop operational services. An estimated three billion cups of coffee are consumed daily is one of the most traded commodities in the world, and yet the majority is grown by small farmers. How can Earth Observation help improve what's in your cup whilst empowering those farmers at the same time? EarthEye spearheaded a programme for the UK Space Agency, which created a partnership with a coffee distributor in Kenya and Rwanda. Owen, can you talk us through how this came about? So... It was quite fortuitous, really, that, um, you know, the UK government helped us make some of the contacts and some contacts we had from previous work I've been doing in Kenya. And it became really clear that as a cash crop, coffee is a great opportunity for satellite data, because if you can help smallholder farmers... So coffee is grown, I think 60% of the coffee in the, in the world is grown by smallholder farmers. Now, these are people who have really small plots of land. They might have just a couple of coffee bushes. And if you can help them grow better coffee and start to sort of stave off some of the negative effects of climate change, then they can make more money for their coffee crop. It's more saleable, it's tastier, we get better coffee, it's a win-win. So what we put into place um, together with some partners is, is a service which uses really high resolution weather data together with satellite imagery to provide to farmers, smallholder farmers, it started off in Kenya and Rwanda, but it's expanding now, text messages directly to their phones which say, today is the day to apply your fertilizer or today is the day to apply your fungicide. And by the way, while you're at it, make sure you apply it to the underside of the leaves because that stops it getting washed off by the rain. So not only promoting, you know, these time specific inputs of fertilizing chemicals and things, but also the ecological uh, improvements to, to how the farms operate. So it's a really, it's one of my favorite projects, to be honest. And it's something which are expanding now as well to create a kind of virtuous 
circle where some of the data that we're getting on the performance of coffee crops can also then be used by others to support trading activity. So you've got this situation where smallholder farmers can benefit and it makes the flow of coffee around the world more efficient, more effective. So it's also leading to some things like uh, some kind of uh, supply chain improvements in some countries because they realise that farmers can sell directly to buyers instead of having to go through auctions. So uh, some really interesting impacts of that. And and yeah, really surprising that it comes from satellite. But as I say, when a, a crop is worth as much as coffee, it's, it's worth doing. health implications of exposure to air pollution remain a public health concern. In a 2018 report led by King's College London, published by the Governance Committee on the Medical Effects of Air Pollutants, it was estimated that between 28,000 and 36,000 people die as a result of air pollution every year in the UK. Richard, we have the infrastructure in place to help us monitor air pollution levels. But with the help of GI, we're able to do so much more. Can you tell us about the air quality models that you've been working on? The Satellite Air Quality Modelling Project is a project that we're running uh, through the European Space Agency Business Applications Programme. And we're working very closely with Imperial College London to help to provide robust information into their air quality models that's derived from satellite imagery and the way that specifically manifests itself is that we've been working to extract vehicles and traffic from satellite images and that is then forming a proxy for emissions which drives these very very robust air quality models that are created by Imperial College. These air quality models are, they're often operating already throughout UK and Europe, but they're fed by, again, sensors. So one or two sensors throughout a city that might be collecting traffic information. Whereas what we can do with a a satellite image is actually capture an entire city or large parts of a city in a single instance, giving us this huge area understanding of traffic. So satellites are in effect providing quite a unique input into this air quality model. The other sort of powerful piece of satellite imagery is that we can take that to other parts of the world where there might perhaps be no information at all about traffic information. So we can go to cities such as Lagos in Nigeria or Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia or Mexico City, where there's very limited information about traffic and very limited information about air quality. And we can deliver information there without necessarily having to have that data that's coming from a source in in that place. So the way that that works is that there's a variety of different spectral bands within a satellite. And some of those spectral bands allow us to measure vegetation health. And by applying that over a a time series, so by looking at vegetation health over several months or several years, we can see seasonal change in things like agricultural crops. We can see things like reduction and increase in, in forest stands. And we can see things like 
carbon absorption so we can understand which pieces of vegetation are absorbing more carbon than others. There's been extensive research into how emissions of pollutants into the air can result in changes to the climate. We know that increasing temperatures are detrimental to our planet, but heat also carries a risk when we're exposed to it. So I would come back again to the example I spoke about at the beginning uh, of our heat hazard index. The idea of this is that it's giving a heat hazard number to every postcode in Great Britain. So we know that people are very, very familiar with postcodes as a way of knowing where they are. People know where they live. They know all the postcodes around them. And it's a very useful way of understanding geospatial data um, and your location in context. So what we've done is put a risk value against every postcode in the UK between one and five of the impact of a heat wave event. So people can very, very simply come and look at this information and see how vulnerable they are when a heat wave happens. And they can adjust their activities accordingly. So that's already in place. And it's something that we published as part of our support and response to COVID. So that we realised that a lot of people were going to be trapped indoors and potentially quite vulnerable people were going to be trapped indoors. And this was our way of contributing to that. So what we've actually done is work very closely with Ordnance Survey using their open source COVID license to apply our heat hazard data to their postcode data and get that out to a really wide range of end users. We've provided that data free of charge to government organisations, local authorities and similar emergency responders during summer 2020 to help them understand the impacts of heat and how that is going to impact on society. After CO2, methane is the second biggest contributor to human-caused global warming. Emissions of methane have reached the highest levels on record, according to the most recent global methane budget. Alexander, Element AI have been working on something to improve detection. So they, they already have some sensors, some satellite out there that can um, detect methane. So what's interesting is greenhouse gas in general can be, um, since they interact with sunlight, they can, they can be observed with cameras. They, they are called hyperspectral cameras. Um, so they already have sensors out there. These are fairly high resolution, so you can detect sources of methane emission. But these, these have to be big emissions, like a large amount of methane, uh, in order to be detectable. And so the project we're seeking is to, uh, is to be able to enhance the detection. So using machine learning and AI, can we improve and be able to find more sources of methane emissions? And speaking of methane, you're also working on something that involves counting cows. So it, sound, it sounds a little silly um, in the beginning. Why would we start counting the number of cows? But essentially, the aim is to be able to track the, um, the cattle activities, especially in the Amazon forest. Since two, around 2008, I think there's um, new legislation, like preventing from deforesting the Amazon to extend the grazing areas of cows. Although these laws are not always respected, and, you know, people just trigger forest fire accidentally and this extends grazing areas and then you can raise more cows. And then these cows are brought down uh, to the south where there's more grazing areas and they can sell them uh, and claim they come from the south. So 
This is a, an example of a laundering process that allows them to go around the legislation. And uh, with remote sensing, if we are able to detect cows and count cows, like uh, at least a little bit reliably, then we can track these activities and monitor and, and, and make people more accountable. Um, so, yeah, that's the hope. It said that the use of AI and EO could help agriculture become a carbon absorber instead of a carbon emitter. Can you explain what's meant by this? Some form of hope that uh, we can make progress in that direction. But, you know, like fundamentally speaking, plants are absorbing carbon, right? They turn CO2 from the air and turn it into carbon in the soil. They've been doing that for millions of years and accumulating carbon in the soil but, or in trees above ground. But yeah, when we decided to expand agriculture through the planet, uh, what we do is like we, we come with our big machinery, we cut down the trees, we're really reducing the carbon that's there. And then we start tilling the soil. By tilling the soil, we just flip it over and it releases all the carbon that's in the soil. And that was not enough. So we add some pesticide to make sure we kill everything. And then, then all the carbon that was released to left there is, is just evaporating. So we're, we're left with a ground that had like a soil that has almost no carbon in it. And initially it had like a lot of carbon. But agriculture doesn't need to be like that, right? And actually, since your, your soil becomes weak, so you, you have to, um, to add some fertilizer to it. There's fertilizer, like they do require uh, like some amount of energy to produce. And also when you put too much, it converts into another greenhouse gas, the nitrous oxide. So this whole process is caused by industrial agriculture. I mean, the, you know, it was a revolution in a sense because we were able to feed much, uh, much more people on the planet than previously expected. But it is weakening the soil and some, some farmers are no, no longer able to grow uh, on these crops because... They're, they're kind of too, too bland. I, I don't know, it's, it's missing like lots of nutrients, so they have to move on. Um, so there's a new trend called regenerative agriculture that helps, you know, these soil to, to revive, to rebuild the microbiome. They just do it like a tiny amount of tilling on the soil surface to prevent the, uh, the deeper soil to, uh, to lose its carbon. So th- these are new techniques that are developing that it shows it's possible to acquire more carbon in the soil. And how does AI play a part? It can offer new tools that's going to simplify and reduce the cost of doing these more complex approach. Because, you know, it, it is a little bit more labor intense to do things the right way. And sometimes it's not always the most economical way. In the long term, it does help you increase the yield. It, it does help increase the health of your soil. And it does increase the amount of carbon stored in the soil. Now, if you extrapolate on that, there's uh, people that believe in them. I mean, believe is a big word. Uh, but there are people that are hoping they can move forward and um, absorb more carbon, uh, like they call it carbon farming. So maybe we, uh, we'll be able to track how much carbon can be stored in the soil, and maybe we can bring incentive through some you know, carbon offsets where farmers are incentivized to accumulate more carbon. There's different ways of doing it. It's, it's still open research. What are the best ways of doing it? And I think AI can play a role. Precision agriculture is definitely expanding industry um, in many different ways. It can increase the yield. And it's going to require some level of AI for reaching that. And if done right way, precision agriculture can start increasing the amount of carbon stored in the soil. And remote sensing can play a big role in there uh, through earth observation where, you know, in the shortwave infrared, you can measure to some extent the amount of carbon in the soil and some of the nutrients that are in the soil. And also, you know, through 
more conventional RGB, you know, the, the visible light uh, images that we see, you can, you can see the behavior of the plants, like how they react, you know, with the weather, if it just rains, like how do they react to that? How, do they, how are they robust to uh, new pests uh, that are arriving? And you can, in principle, observe all of these and observe the farming activities and be able to estimate how much carbon is on the land. And, and, and if you can enable uh, like a good track, if, if you're able to provide a good tracking of this carbon, then, then you can eventually enable some policies that would encourage the farmer to, to do the right thing. With improved access to data and proven models, the future could see more sectors realising the value of adding geospatial information to their businesses. It's becoming increasingly apparent that being location-aware is the key to delivering a wide range of services. Owen, it would seem that things are really moving along at a very exciting pace, aren't they? We're already seeing the improvements in the ease of doing you know, machine learning and AI and data science on data. Um, that used to be the preserve of a small handful of experts, but now people are coming out of universities with those types of skills, um, which means that they could answer questions you know, more quickly. I'm very hopeful, particularly seeing the progress that we've made in the last 15 years in terms of making you know, satellite services really accessible to civil users, that yeah, I, if it carries on growing the same rate it's growing, then, then I wouldn't be surprised that you know, we already have a weather app on our phone that uses satellite data. But actually, I wouldn't be surprised if in 10, 15 years, we'll have so much deeper capabilities that really almost answer the questions that we have. So what if you could say to Alexa or, you know, obviously other smart home speakers are available, but if, what if you could say, you know, Alexa, what is happening at, you know, this smelter in a certain location in China? I mean, it might sound crazy, but, you know, it might happen. I think a really interesting part of all of this for us when we talk about objective evidence is thinking about the big global push from governments and corporations to align themselves more closely with environmental, social, corporate governance, so that their ESG strategies. So we hear more and more announcements from big corporations and governments about how they're doing things more sustainably. And what satellite information allows us to do is really prove that that is the case. So it allows corporations to actually look at their assets around the world and prove that they are as sustainable as they say they are. So we see all of this data as a, as a hugely powerful piece of evidence that can inform all of that corporate strategy and that government strategy as, as people work to be more sustainable. I think the area where I have most excitement personally is the role that our industry has in supporting and finding the solutions to some of the world's most pressing challenges. We're seeing the development of global planetary computing capabilities, building on top of the, the improvements in the accessibility to cloud-based infrastructure for storage, compute and analysis. We have advances in the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning for use on global geospatial data archives. We have access to daily imagery, enabling new use cases. 
We have advances in the Internet of Things and edge computing, enabling massive collection of data, including the growth in potential for crowdsourcing and citizen science. And this all gives me confidence that as an industry, we're able to contribute something positive to the world. And I look forward to the Catapult and the UK geospatial community playing a significant part in this. Thank you to Peter Baymont, Richard Flemings, Owen Hawkins and Alexander Lacoste for joining me on this episode. And of course, to the Satellite Applications Catapult for making it all possible. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And to find out more between episodes about how space is empowering industries, visit the Catapult website or join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook.